everybody? Welcome to a Three Geeks PVD collaboration. We are here with the legendary Carl Gottlieb. How are you doing today? Uh, so far, so good. <laughs> it's up to you guys now. <laughs> That's great. Are you in California? Yes. Okay. Okay. How are things out there in California? Hot. It's 99 degrees today. Wow. Holy cow. It's like in the 50s here. And luckily, West Hollywood is on fire, but the mountain, a lot of, you know, about a billion acres of burning. Yeah, yeah, that's that's, that's awful. I can't even imagine what that's like to, to, to try to get through something along those lines. That's a motherfucker. Yeah. You yeah. should excuse yeah. the expression. See, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can say whatever we want, right? Oh, you can. Yeah, I just express it. It's good. So, Carl, um, let's start off a little bit um, in your early life, in your childhood. I'd read somewhere where your, your parents were in engineering and in the medical field. Yes. Were they were they supportive of your creative endeavors? Because I, I know there's that old kind of cliche where the you know very professional parents want their children to be doctors and judges and lawyers and that. Was that the case or no? No, I was very, very fortunate. My dad was a civil servant. And, uh, but he, he was, he trained as an engineer, as a civil engineer, and he wanted to go out and build roads and bridges and railroads and tunnels. And, you know, that was, that was what he wanted to do, but it was the depression and there weren't a lot of jobs. There wasn't a lot of construction mm -hmm. or engineering. So in the midst of the depression, he had, you know, he had a child on the way, me. So he took a job with the city of New York as a civil service, as an engineer, but in the Department of Housing and Zoning and mostly pushing paperwork and doing permits and inspections and that kind of stuff. And his advice, his heartfelt advice to me was, do what you want to do. Don't get trapped in a job you don't like, because I don't like my job, but I've got 25 years into retirement, I've got a pension. You got health care, you know, the benefits. I can't pass up the benefits. <clears throat> and the sad thing was that when he, reti he retired, he was at the top of his civil service, but he couldn't get any higher without a political appointment. He had passed every civil service test going up the ladder, so he was like a GS-15 or something. <clears throat> but you know, civil service salaries really lagged the private sector, so we were essentially, you know, lower middle class. I mean, you know, meet, you know, meet three times a week, you know, not, not, not every day. Yeah. And, and, uh, and he said, you know, just do what you want to do. So armed with that, you know, incentive, and my mom, of course, not only encouraged me, but she Send me for aptitude testing to see what I would, you know, what I was really suited for. And she was very progressive. They were both very progressive mm -hmm. parents for the 40s. And so they wanted me to do what I wanted to do. So, uh, and I got a, you know, I got a, a no strings attached scholarship from the state of New York. It'd be what they used to call a regent's scholarship. It was based on a competitive exam. And if, if you, won it, you'd get four years of just cash stipends every year that you could use for tuition or books or, you know, drugs. It didn't matter. They just sent you a check. They just sent you, they just sent you a check. 
So I, and my parents saved a little bit for college. So I, I went to two good colleges. I went to City College of New York, which was a, a very upscale. Uh, they used to call it the blue collar Harvard because uh, you know, the philosophy and the English departments were really strong. Uh, anyway, I went to CCNY for a couple of years, and then I wanted to go to a place that was tired of taking public transportation to high school and college. So I transferred. I wanted to go to a school with fraternities and you know dormitories and a football team and a stadium. And that was Syracuse, and they had a journalism school, which was my interest. I was always a writer. <laughs> so I went to Syracuse, made a, majored in theater and journalism, and graduated with the uh, a vow that I was only going to do show business or writing. I, was, I wasn't going to be a bartender or a cop or a cab driver or office temp or any of those things. If I couldn't make money in a theater or writing, I wouldn't do it. So I had a lot of low-budget jobs. I mean, I was getting like 25 bucks and meals, uh, you know, doing lighting and sound for a coffee house in Greenwich Village. But, you know, I could make a living. One job led to another, and then pretty soon I had a career. So when, when did you make the decision to be an actor and a writer? Was that, I mean, obviously before college, but did you know, like, when you were a teenager or when you were a little kid? I was always a writer. Words were my friends. I can't remember not being able to read. So I was always reading and writing. I won a prize for uh, uh, English composition in high school. I edited the yearbook. I edited the City College Humor magazine. I wrote a daily column, at the Sir a weekly column for the Syracuse uh, newspaper, uh, the, the university newspaper, which was, you know, because it was a, a journalism school paper, it was pretty professionally run daily. So I was always, I was always writing, always putting words on paper, and getting paid for it for the most part. Uh, and so, uh, and then, theater arts was different. But, but, uh, but I was a, a techie. I was a stage manager and a lighting guy to begin with. And you know, there's always more opportunity for those guys than there is for writers. But I knew I was going to be in show business. I knew I was going to be writing. And so I never took a job that wasn't about writing or show business. So I, I mean, it's like, like I knew. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I actually can trace the decision back. I was hiking across the campus in Syracuse. It was the dead of winter. I graduated mid-year. In January, I should have been a class of June 59, but I had to make up a few credits because I transferred. So I was actually class of January 60. And in January, the snow is 12 feet deep. It doesn't get light until 8 in the morning. It was dark and cold, and I was trudging across the campus. And I was saying, okay, I'm... I'm done. I mean, I finished. I just graduated. I'm not going anywhere. I mean, there's no graduation ceremony. I can come back in June if I want to put on a cap and gown. But for now, when I walk out of the theater arts building, I'm done. I'm done with education. I've done my 16 years. You know, K through 8, 9 through 12, and 12 through 16. 
straight through just the way you're supposed to do it. No, no time off, no gap year, no, you know, none of that shit that you guys get to do. I went to, I went to school for 16 years straight and came out with a Bachelor of Science degree with a dual major in speech and dramatic art and journalism. From what turned out to be a really good journalism school, which was now is the Annenberg School of Communications. In those days, it was just the Syracuse University J School. But it was competitive with Northwestern and uh, University of Missouri and Columbia, which were the big journalism schools in, in that time. Okay. A little bit about what? The committee. The committee. The committee was was a, a happiest happiest time of my life. I was uh, in the army. My friend, my friend and roommate from college, Larry Hankin, uh, stayed in New York. He was pursuing a career as a stand-up as an actor. I I got drafted. He he got out of the draft. I didn't. But I'm in the army. I'm stationed in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And I see that Larry Hankin is going to open with a company of the Compass Theater in St. Louis, which was one of the first improvisational theaters ever in the world. Compass Theater was uh, the ancestor of Second City. So he was opening in a Compass company in St. Louis. And I was at Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, so I could go in on the weekends and hang out. So I did. And from St. Louis, he went to Second City. Then he got fired from Second City, but he got hired by Alan Meyerson, who was putting together the committee in San Francisco. So he went to San Francisco, and he wrote me this, and he said, you know, San Francisco's great. You've got to come here. So I, I did. I mean, I, I was, uh, I got out of the Army, and I went to San Francisco, and I hung out with the committee, and they, they needed a stage manager, and that's what I did. So I became a stage manager for the committee, and then I started appearing in a couple of sketches in the part of stage manager, I'd go on stage. I'd go on stage and get my laughs. I, you know, I would, I would perform in, in a couple of different improvisations. And then uh, I directed a company of the committee, and then I got hired. Then I went to New York. I left the committee for a, a year, went to New York, sold my first article for big money to Esquire magazine. I sold an article on motorcycles, bought a motorcycle. <laughs> And then got hired as a, to come back to the committee as an actor, in the company with uh, Howard Hessman and and uh, Dick Stahl and some you know it was a great company. <clears throat> and I went back as an actor in '66, and was in San Francisco from '66 to '68, which is ground zero of the Cultural Revolution. <clears throat> improvising, you know, two shows a night, three on Saturday, six nights a week, doing you know. And because we were dark on Mondays, we could go see whatever other night the other nightclubs were dark on Sundays. So if we were dark on Mondays, we could go to the Hungry Eye or the Purple Onion or the El Matador or any of the jazz clubs off Broadway, on Broadway. So I could see Lenny Bruce and the Smothers Brothers and uh, Marsal and uh, you know I, 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 every act that came through San Francisco. So it was, you know, it was the best of times. And then in 68, the company moved to a theater in Los Angeles. And that was the beginning of the big time because we were playing in a theater on the Sunset Strip. <clears throat> uh, we were well-reviewed. 
everybody came to see us. Bob Altman came and hired me to do the movie MASH. Some others brothers hired me to write their, their shows. So, you know, from, that led to the big time. But the committee was four or five years of the best year, best, best most creative years of my life uh, you know, in terms of, it's where I learned everything I know about show business. Okay, I'm going to take improv classes to help really help with this. Well, everybody teaches improv now. I mean, it's, and, and there are, there are really good theater groups like the Groundlings and uh, uh, Upright Citizens Brigade and, and, of course, Second City that make a good living teaching, you know, teaching people who want to do improv. And, and the classes tend to be a kind of a feeder to, for the most talented kind of rise to the top. First, you know, you're spotted in a class and you get maybe hired for a touring company or, uh, you know, this Second City provides companies to like cruise ships. And so, you know, you're not, you know, you're not in Chicago, but you're performing a Second City. <clears throat> and, you know, so it's, you know, it's good for everybody. So, um, but that's nowadays. In those days, uh, we all had workshops. I mean, a committee had workshops. We, we found our new players of usually coming out of workshops. You know, it's hard to audition for improvisation. It's not like you have a prepared script. You just have to do the exercises and demonstrate that you have a facility for the skills that are required for improvisation, which are kind of different than the skills that are necessary for any other performing art. Okay. Um, I have a question about the Smothers Brothers. Sure. Um, what was it like to work on that very hip but somewhat controversial show? I kind of hate what was it like questions because, you know, it was, okay. like, it was a job. You know, it was a great job. <laughs> and what was it like was it was a, a bunch of really smart, funny young people my own age we were all hired at roughly the same time as Lorenzo Music and Bob Einstein and Steve Martin and Murray Roman and uh, some, other, some others. Lorenzo, I, I said Lorenzo Music. Anyway, uh, and uh, we were charged with writing funny sketch material for the funniest sketch performers on in variety television at the time, or certainly the the three funniest shows. It was the golden age of variety. I mean, it was Carol Burnett, and Laugh-In, and Red Skelton, and, you know, there were a lot of shows. Um, and, but there was a, a, the group that was in the, uh, writing the Smothers Brothers show was particularly young and hip and creative, and the Smothers wanted to be revolutionary and different and politically hip. Uh, so we got to be as hip as we could be within the confines of the CBS network mindset, which was fairly uh, conservative. I mean, at that time, you know, CBS was the Tiffany of networks, and they were very aware of their, you know, responsibilities. You know, you know Walter Cronkite, you know, the, the heavies, and they didn't like that the Smothers were... Uh, uh, didn't give a shit about censorship. 
Do you have any cool stories about Tom or Dick? Um, Principle? You know, the, the, you're not involving sex, drugs, and rock and roll? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I no. mean, at this point, hell, whatever. <laughs> no, I mean, they, they were, you know, they were a hip young act. They had, had a couple of attempts at television that didn't do well. But when they went on the air with the variety show, they knocked Bonanza out of number one. That was the first time that ever happened. Uh, and they started winning their time slot, and they were a top ten variety show. And uh, and they they owned the show. By that time, they they didn't have to put up with network approved producers. They were their own producers. So all they had to do was uh, do the show and supply the finished tape to the network. And then the network would grumble about, you know, oh, Joan Baez is singing pacifist songs and Pete Seeger is singing subversive stuff and Harry Belafonte is singing subversive stuff and you're doing a sketch about a black man kissing a white woman. And that was scandalous. And so the network hated it and eventually canceled the show. The same year we won the Emmy, we were canceled. That doesn't happen very often. That a canceled show wins the Emmy. Not we knocked we knocked Raffin out of uh, top variety musical comedy slot. Wow! There, and the award, the uh, uh, Emmy Award for Best New Comedy Musical Variety Show goes to and the Raffin people have been winning two years two years in a row, kind of like Saturday Night Live now. Raffin people were already standing up when they announced the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. Then we got to go up on stage and collect our Emmys. <laughs> that's awesome. That's a good like win in the end. Yeah, that was that, that was good. Uh, so you've worked on Laverne and Shirley and Mork and Mindy. Happy Days is one of my favorite shows of all time, and of course, Laverne and Shirley and Mork and Mindy are connected. Yep. I, I never did Happy Days, but I did Mork and ben, Mindy as an actor, and I did Laverne and Shirley as an actor and as a director. I directed an episode of that. Uh, so yeah, and I you know I knew all the people involved. I knew Gary Marshall. I knew Penny Marshall. Penny and I dated at one time when she was a young up and coming actress before she got Laverne. She at that time she was a day player on um, uh, Odd Couple playing Myrna the secretary, Myrna Turner. And I was on Odd Couple as a story editor. So I mean it was a. In those days, it was a fairly small world. If you were a funny, improvising actor in comedy, or stand-up for that matter, you knew everybody else in the business. You, know, you, know, was, you gotta remember, in those days, in the early 60s, you could fit every folk singer in New York into the circle in Washington Square on a Sunday afternoon for hoot nannies. That was like every folk singer there was. Uh, and then the folk singing became big, the Kingston Trio became hot shit, the Limelighters, and then and the Smothers Brothers did well with you know their, they, their take on it, which was comedic. So and, uh, if, if you were working as a comic actor or improviser or stand-up, you knew almost everybody else in the business. Mm-hmm. Okay. To do the same. You guess you did guest shots on the same show. You, you auditioned, and there was a, a sense of community. I mean, that you don't see that anymore. But there was a, I mean, there was an actor 
who was the same physical type as me, sitting so, you know, around and had glasses, a guy named Oliver Clark, Ollie Clark, and another guy named Michael Lerner, heavy set character actor. And we would tell each other if we were auditioning, you know, hey, did you get that call? You know, tell your agent that they're, they're looking for a guy like us. And we would wind up at the same auditions. And we didn't care. We, weren't, we didn't feel terribly competitive. You know, one of us got it, great. One of the others would get it the next time. So we would tell each other about opportunities. That doesn't happen anymore. Mm -hmm. When you, um, because you talked about writing uh, some, some shows and whatnot, and writing, of course, later we'll talk about your writing in movies. What's the process like for you when you sit down to write? Um, I've described it as you make ever-decreasing concentric circles around the keyboard until there's no place else left to go. And then, to quote Dorothy Parker, you just open up a vein and write. It's lonely, painful, difficult work. George Bernard Shaw is credited. I don't know who actually said it first. Somebody said, you know, Mr. Shaw, do you like being a writer? And Shaw replied, I like having written. Mm -hmm. The process of writing itself is, is painful. But, you know, if that's what you do, that's what you do. It's, it's like if, you, if you're a ballerina, you know, after a four-hour practice session, your feet are going to bleed. Mm -hmm. Most people don't go into professions where they bleed at the end of a work day. But in show business, uh, it's, it's not uncommon. And if you're not bleeding, if you're not a dancer and your feet aren't bleeding, you're a comedian and your soul is bleeding, or you're an actor and you know, your, your ego is bruised and damaged by constant rejection, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not an easy life. And I don't recommend it to anybody who wants an easy life. I mean, I tell writers, you know, even if you're successful, you're going to be unemployed most of your adult life. So think about something else to do in the meantime. Get a hobby. <laughs> Build ships in a bottle. <laughs> do you have a preference, writing, directing, or acting? Acting. Acting is the best. You come in, they give you a trailer, Guy comes and gets you when it's time on the set. You memorize, you've memorized your lines. You go stand on your mark. You say your words. They point you at the craft service table. Here, look, free food. This is pre-pandemic. Uh, you know, and then you go back to your trailer and wait for the next setup. And then when you're at the end of the day, you go home. You don't have to worry about if you've made your day. You don't have to worry about did you get all the coverage. You don't have to, to worry, you know, was your close-up okay? I mean, you can worry. But it's not your responsibility. All you have to do is say up and show up and say your words. It's the easiest part of the business. And I have another question about Mark and Mindy, real quick. Um, sure. What was your experience uh, being on that show? Because I've heard watching some interviews with some of the Happy Days cast that Robin Williams was just so into that role, and he would never, you know, do the same lines over and over again. Was it the same experience about Mark and Mindy? Um, Robin was, was uh, you know, a force of nature. There was never, there has not been an actor like him before or since, maybe Jonathan Winters 50 years ago. But um, Robin was this, you know, insane, irrepressible talent. And, you know, you didn't really direct him. I mean, you kind of arranged the cameras so you would not miss whatever it was that Robin was doing. 
and you know sometimes you, if you went off the mark and strayed off the text, you cut and say, Robin, let's go back to the script. You'd go back to the script. He was conscientious, uh, but like I say, it was a force of nature. There was no, there's, there's been no actor before or since that could do what he did. And I am not surprised that when he was diagnosed with a disease that was going to affect the quickness of his wit and the quickness of his responses, uh, I have no doubt that the colossal disappointment of learning that fact hastened his his departure. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I gotta ask, um, so one of my favorite films of all time is The Jerk, with mm -hmm. and you were a big part of that. Yep. What, how does that idea come, come about? Um, uh, Steve Martin got a, a contract with Paramount to write three films for himself to star in. And they funded a short subject to introduce him to a film audience. That short was The Absent-Minded Waiter, which I directed for Steve, and it was nominated for the Academy Award. And Steve and I were, uh, Steve said, you know, by that time I had written Jaws and I had written Which Way Is Up for Richard Pryor, so my comedy credentials were in place. So Steve asked me if I'd collaborate with him on, the, on his first screenplay because he had, hadn't, he had never done that before and he knew I did. And we were friends, you know, we went back to, this was 75, 76, and we went back to 68 together. So, you know, we, you know I had house sat his place in Aspen in the old days and when I, I needed a place to write, I went to his house. Uh, you know, we, we were friends. So we got this job. We got a writer's room at Paramount at the studio gave us. We'd show up. They gave us yellow pads and pencils and electric typewriters. And we showed up every day at the room and looked at each other and said, well, now what? <laughs> and that went on for a couple of weeks. We, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. <laughs> <laughs> and then Steve said, my manager thinks it should be about money because everybody's interested in money. And, you know, okay, that's a good idea. Something about money. And then, again, we're sitting around you know, just kicking ideas. And Steve said, you know, there's a line in my act that always gets a laugh, so I know it's funny. And uh, it's... I was born a poor black child. We looked at each other and said, well, what if you were? Where, where does that take us? And we started writing the opening sequences of The Jerk, the, the, the stuff in the Mississippi Delta, the, you know, where, where he discovers he's not black. That was the genesis of that, of that movie. What, I was born a poor black child. Well, Carl, can we talk a little bit about Jaws? I suppose so. <laughs> I call it, I'm not, nowadays I call it the fish movie, but yes. <laughs> well, I, I read where Steven Spielberg got you kind of solidified with the project because not only were you kind of rewriting the script that was originally pitched, 
but he got you to be the act. He got you an acting part in it so that you would be kind of like have the synergy. Exactly. He asked you if I would act in it in a, in a, in a part that has, you know, the web of the picture. So it was a fairly important part. Meadows, the editor of the paper. Sure. Yeah. And so uh, I got the job as an actor first. And he said, "If you can help me with improvising, because I'm going to be working with a lot of." Uh, naive actors, a lot of inexperienced actors. I can't bring. There's no budget for Hollywood actors. You know, I'm, I got Scheider and Dreyfus and, and Shaw, but no, you know, nobody. Maybe Murray Hamilton, maybe one or two others, but everybody else is going to be local or a Boston hire. So I said, you know, great, sure, I can do that. And then he sent me a copy of the script that he was working with with a note on it saying, eviscerate it. So I wrote a memo about what I thought about the script. I was right about one thing and wrong about another thing. The thing I was wrong about was, I remember saying, does the girl in the first scene have to have sex and die? Is that such a horror movie cliche? Teenager, if we see you naked in the first reel, you're going to be dead by the second reel. You know, and but students, well, I think I have a way of shooting it that's going to be interesting. Sure enough, and the other thing that I got right was, and I have a memo that says this. I said, if we do our jobs right, writer and, and director, people will feel about going in the ocean the way they feel about the way they felt about taking a shower after Psycho. And sure enough, 45 years later, on the AFI top, top 100 horror films of all time, Psycho's number one, and Jaws is number two. Yeah. yeah. What was it like working with Peter Benchley? Was it a kind of a, a smooth working relationship or no? Well, we didn't work together. We were what, what you would call serial collaborators. Okay. He, wrote the, he wrote the novel. The novel was a bestseller. That's what was optioned for a motion picture. Howard Sackler, well, Peter eventually also wrote the first couple of drafts of the movie. Okay. They, they, were not, they didn't satisfy Stephen or, or Zanuck and Brown. So they hired another more professional screenwriter named Howard Sackler, who wrote an intermediate draft and introduced the famous Indianapolis speech that comes out of Sackler's draft, the, the the draft of it, not the speech itself. But it was, you know, two pages of monologue by Quint explaining where he's coming from. <clears throat> so that was the Sackler draft. And that's the draft that I inherited and that I started rewriting three weeks before principal photography. And then we went on, we left, I, I got the job offer on a Monday, Tuesday, Stephen and I were off for New England we stopped in Boston for three or four days to cast extras. Then we went to Martha's Vineyard where we shared a house and lived, ate, breathed, slept. We didn't sleep together. We had separate bedrooms. <laughs> but we, we, we were basically, you know, eating meals together, talking about when, when we weren't actually making the movie. We were talking about the movie and having dinner with uh, Verna Fields, who was editing the movie. Uh, and Zanuck, Zanuck or Brown, whoever was in the vineyard for that. And it was, uh, again, a very intensely collaborative experience. Uh, and it turned out well. Who knew? Yeah. 
And then, and then you, you wrote a book called The God's Log, which is a, a, a Bible, so to speak, if you will, those type of, uh, those type of books. So, yep, there you go, right there. Wherever books are sold, <laughs> buy it. You won't be disappointed. Yeah, I wrote a book about it. It came out the same time the movie was released and sold a couple million copies. So that was the only money I made from Jaws was from the book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, but Zanuck and Brown were really stingy bastards, and they, you know, I was getting paid for scale for writing and scale for acting, which was like, okay, I, I, when my, I lived on my per diem and then cashed my checks and bought a brand new little BMW 2002 with my Jaws money and then drove it back to California with my then wife. We, and we bought it in New Jersey right after we, uh, right after they wrapped me. See, I got wrapped in, uh, I guess, July or August, because we had shot everything with words had been filled. There was nothing left but water and shark and boat, and I wasn't involved in any of that. So they let me go. So I went to New Jersey with my wife. We bought a little car. And in those days, you had to break a car in slowly. You had to drive it for 1,000, 2,000 miles without going over 60. So we drove the car. Leisurely, we drove south from New Jersey to Nashville, where a bunch of our friends were making a movie called Nashville. So we hung out with Bob Altman and Ronnie Blakely and uh, that crowd, and then continued on. We got as far as Texarkana, and then I got a call, you need it back in L.A. So I went back to L.A. to work at the, in television, and Allison finished driving by herself and showed up in L.A. with our new, our new little car. <laughs> well, last question for me. Um, you've held many positions in the Writers Guild of America organization. Yes. Um, could you maybe tell the listeners or the watchers what does that organization do? What is its goal? Writers Guild of America is, at its heart, a labor union devoted to serving the interests of the community of writers. So it has union rules about wages and working conditions. It arbitrates screen credits when writers disagree about who should get screen credit. Uh, and it distributes residuals and reuse payments that are mandated by the contract that the studios owe us when they reuse our material. And because the guild had been very helpful to me as just as a writer because if you're a professional writer secondary if you're a professional in show business you belong to one of the in, in those days one of the four the, the four a's actors equity screen actors guild after writers guild directors guild you know uh, so i belong to all of those unions but i was most interested in the writers guild because they they served me the best. They did, they did well by me. So in, in the spirit of giving back, I volunteered for guild service. I ran for the board of directors, and I won. And then I on and off served on the, uh, on the board of directors for the next, on and off for the next 20 years. 
I was vice president for four different terms. And then finally I, I uh, retired, but I spent about 25 years in guild governance. And also I represented American writers at the International Affiliation of Writers Guilds, which was, as you can tell, you know, exactly what it says. Most of, most of the English-speaking languages, the UK, Ireland, Australia, South Africa, um, New Zealand, they all have writers' guilds kind of on the same model as writers' guild U.S. And there's a writers' guild East in New York, which is similar. Uh, years ago, somebody asked the question in a meeting, how come uh, if there's one Germany, there's still two writers' guilds? Because we had a writer's guild east and west, and we still do. <laughs> that division is still perpetuated, but it's ruined, it's ruined history, and it's, it's never been successfully ironed out. So we're kind, we're kind of like the Dred Scott decision, separate but equal. <laughs> but writer's guild west is more equal because we administer residuals for everybody. Yeah. Okay. I was going through your IMDb as I was getting ready for the interview today, and I've got one more question. One of the things that caught my eye was a movie called The Caveman, which I now must seek out and watch. Can you tell me what that's about and the experience working on it? Oh, sure. Caveman was enormous fun. Terman and, Larry Terman and David Foster, a couple of producers, had a, I guess they had a deal at Warner Brothers, and they came to me and they said, do you remember 1 million BC? And I said, you know, the black and white one or the color one with Raquel Welch and a fur bikini? He said, both of them. I said, yeah, you know, they're, they're part of the culture. I remember those. So well, we want to do the same thing, only funny. <laughs> funny cave people. Good idea. So I signed on and I wrote a few drafts. And then they wanted to go more slapstick. So they asked me if I would collaborate with Rudy DeLuca, who was one of Mel Brooks's favorite writers. And I said, I'll work with Rudy. And uh, the script kind of changed direction with Rudy's input, because the, the, uh, we both have screenplay credit. We developed this uh, kind of broad physical comedy about uh, primitive man. You know, the, the, very first, the, very the very first time that anything happened. First time man walked direct, first time they discovered music, first time they discovered fire. And we even had a made-up language where they did not speak English. They spoke cave talk, you know, about 30-, 40-word vocabulary. Uh, and we wrote it that way, and it, I was locked into doing When I took the job, I said, if, I, if this film is picked up, it gets a green light for production, I want to be locked in as director, and I was. So when we got the green light, I got to direct it, and uh, we shot it in Mexico as a Mexican co-production because that was where the locations, were, the best locations were. And so we shot for ten weeks in Mexico, and uh, came back, cut the film in the U.S., and uh, came out in the spring of 80, 81, I think. And it was great fun, and it's a very funny movie. I urge all your viewers, go out and watch Caveman. It's, it's really funny. 
yeah, it jumped on my to watch list. I'm watching it this weekend. I'm very excited to check it out because it's got Ringo Starr, Dennis Quaid, and Shelley Long in it. I love. It's a great cast: Ringo Starr, Shelley Long, Dennis Quaid, Jack Guilford, Avery Schreiber. Some wonderful, wonderful Mexican actors, Shelley. That's the movie where Robert Bach and Ringo Starr hooked up on my movie. <laughs> I introduced them. That's awesome. Uh, Justin, did you have any questions? Uh, I did have one. I, I want, I'm curious. I, I imagine you're a very big reader. Uh, is there any book or work of fiction you'd love to see a screenplay of and be a part of that writing? Is there anything you see currently or reading currently? I'm loving that, but just. There was a film by Peter Matheson years ago called At Play in the Fields of the Lord about a couple of mercenaries in South America, which is a wonderful tale. Uh, I've optioned a couple of books uh, that I thought would make great, great movies. You know, never got anywhere with them, but that, that's one. Uh, and I, I think uh, there's a, there's a, Trying to remember if there's any other literary works that I really think would make a great movie. Um, was, yeah, was, there's almost too many to name, but, but uh, maybe there'd be a lot. I don't know if there's any copy of Yeah, there. yeah the, the, there's the, the, the Peter Matheson. There's, there's uh, oh god. I would have to stop the interview, go into <laughs> go into my computer. <laughs> Well, my very last question for you is, um, I didn't know there was a sequel to The Jerk. Were you involved with that? Not at all. That was, uh, I forgot who was in that. Um, you know, Universal owned the property by that time. And they wanted, I think it was Another Jerk, I think was the name of it. Yeah, something like that. So they made it. I forget who the, it wasn't Michael Richards. It was somebody else. But it was a you know a oddball actor. Um, look it up on IMDb. I, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I get money for it because it's. Uh, I have uh, you know as the as the originator, I get sequel and remake money and a credit you no know, based on, but. Uh, I never saw it. I, I have no idea what the. I have no idea what it is. Yeah, I didn't even know it was a thing. So I was looking at your IMDb, and it was on there. It says character is not written by. Yeah. Well, if I was if I was a Jeopardy category, it would be his hits begin with a J. <laughs> <laughs> well, Caveman was successful in its time, and. and it was, it was great fun to do. Carl, thank you so much for coming on talking to us. It was an honor and a blast hearing about Hollywood. And it's funny because, you know, when we first got your name came across our desk, you know, Jaws, of course, is what you think of. And then I started looking at your IMDb and I saw you were involved with Jerk and all this other stuff. And I was more concerned with talking about all the other stuff, like the improv. Thank you more fascinating mm -hmm. but, uh, thank you so much for coming on yeah uh, where can everybody find you online um i'm on facebook uh there's, uh, there's i have a personal page carl godley 
And then I have a page called the Quintessential Car Gottlieb, which is more of a fan page. And I've got a website called, the, I think, jawslog.com, but that's kind of a static website. This badly needs updating and just sitting there for 10 years. Uh, maybe I get a couple of redirects to Amazon to buy the book, but that's, that's, that's all. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I am not um, devoted to online activities. I, I realize it's necessary to have an online presence, and I answer my emails, and I, uh, you know, I get fan mail, and uh, my, uh, uh, people can reach me by mail or by, by uh, email or use, you know, contact LinkedIn. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm available. I'm not ubiquitous, and I'm, God knows I'm not a 19-year-old TikTok dancer. <laughs> That's an option for you, Carl. You can totally do that. That's the way, that's the way you get 23 million viewers. <laughs> but, uh, that, 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 that part of the internet is foreign to me. I don't, I don't, I don't know who those people are. I mean, most internet, most internet stars. I mean, even the big ones, um, the people with 20 million followers. I have no idea who they are. I've never seen them. I mean, they, I'm not familiar with their work. I don't go to see their movies. I'm not a, uh, you know, a, a big action movie fan. I don't watch the tentpole movies. So a lot of those names, I go, oh, I guess they're very popular. We can start a game channel. Call game. Great. <laughs> All right, well, again, thank you so much for everybody listening or watching from John, myself, and Justin. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.